All right, John 1. This is election season, isn't it? Local elections, anyway. Have you heard any of the campaign slogans? Have you heard any of the promises? Every election season, there's always promises, right? I will advocate for the poor. I will provide for the needy. I will punish the criminals. I will clean up corruption. I will bring character to office. You hear this every political cycle. The perpetual cries of the politicians. Promises made and promises soon forgotten. That seems to be the way things go. That seems to be our experience the world over, doesn't it? Whether such promises are made in good faith or not, it seems that Men and women in leadership seem to perpetually fail to deliver, either because they're unwilling or they're unable. Further, it seems that even some who begin well-intentioned are easily corrupted by a corrupt system. Have you observed this when it comes to politics? Sometimes positions of authority are sought just for the sole purpose of wielding power over others. Pure narcissism leads men and women to positions of authority to build their own empire or their own name, or even their own bank accounts, seeing their citizens as a means to build their own kingdom instead of a people to be served. Sometimes a politician catches our attention who speaks words of compassion and runs on a platform of helping the needy, only later to reveal that their solutions have more to do with punishing one demographic instead of helping another. In this way, we realize that leaders not only often fail to identify problems properly, but they often offer terrible solutions to those problems. Class warfare, identity politics, divisive rhetoric, saying whatever needs to be said to rile up the most political among us in order to get into office and then forget about any promises that were made to start with. So our experience is one of hearing politicians on regular cycles, making promises to care for the weak and provide for the needy and to reject corruption and to lead reform only to prove themselves to be unwilling or, again, unable to fulfill the promises. Now, does that sound overly cynical? I mean, that sounds very Canadian, doesn't it? Because it's kind of our approach to politics. I mean, the, the, whoever comes into office is the one who's won the most, the majority of a, a very small slice of our uh, populace who actually votes, right? And so we can have a governing party who's only uh, won about 35% of the Canadian vote. Uh, Cynicism, deep-seated cynicism. Why? Well, because we're used uh, to this political cycle. That's our collective experience, and that's the collective experience of the world over, you know. There are entire nations who are impoverished or oppressed because a relatively small group of corrupt leaders at the top have unchecked power. This is our experience when it comes to political rulers. In such situations, we may at times witness a well-intentioned individual who says, I want to come and I want to reform. I want to usher in a a political season where the poor are cared for and uh, the corrupt are punished and so on, uh, only to see that upon getting office, uh, they're absolutely powerless to affect any meaningful change. If you come from a country other than the West, you may... Uh, This may resonate with you a little bit as well, uh, coming from a nation under a governmental system where the corruption runs so deep that even a well-intentioned reformer really can't do anything about it. Considering the world scene, rigged elections and even assassinations are on the table uh, in order to protect the corrupt at the top. 
bribes, corruption, dishonesty, broken promises, misguided solutions, divisive politics. These are really the order of the day. So much so that many are beyond hoping for a just and righteous leader to actually come onto the scene and instead resigned to cynical disengagement. But this morning, what if there actually was hope? What if there actually was hope for a politician, a prime minister, a president, a chancellor, a king, someone who would run on a platform of justice and righteousness, perfectly fulfilling his promises? What if there was hope for a leader who actually would advocate for the downtrodden, giving voice to those uh, who otherwise have no voice? One who would also implement just solutions, caring for the weak and without unjustly punishing the strong. A leader who had a compassionate heart, who is moved by the struggling and the suffering. Imagine if such a person would come on the scene. Imagine a leader who not only advocated for the poor and needy and downtrodden, uh, but one who actually uh, executed justice flawlessly. Imagine a leader who, instead of causing division among the people, brings perfect unity. Imagine also that this leader and his policies of compassion and justice are driven by his own personal fear of God. Wouldn't that be something? That is, he compassionately advocates for the poor and needy and execute justice over the wrongdoer perfectly. He vindicates the oppressed without fail and does all this because he himself is perfectly obedient to his God. That'd be an amazing situation. Next, imagine that unlike politicians with which we are familiar, this leader does not simply run on such platforms, but has all authority and power to perfectly execute it for forever. Uh, Forever. Perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect compassionate care, limitless power to make it all happen. Would that person have your vote? Well, we learned that such a hope does exist. Such a hope does exist. It exists for us, but first, this morning, we want to consider our passage in John 1. And we're going to see that that type of hope for just such a leader loomed large in the minds of those Jews who would become the first disciples of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so in this passage, continuing from last week, we find John the Baptist fulfilling his calling as the forerunner of Jesus, paving the way for Christ. 
And so he sees Jesus approaching, and for the second time he declares, this is the Son of God. Last time he said, this is the Son of God who takes away, or I'm sorry, the Lamb of God who takes away the, sons, uh, the sins of the world. And this time he simply declares him the Lamb of God. And so when the disciples of John the Baptist understand that this is the one whom John the Baptist was preparing them for, they then just begin to follow Jesus. They follow Jesus. This is a wonderful indication of the obedience of John the Baptist because John the Baptist comes on the scene and he understands that his sole purpose is really for his disciples to begin to follow another. John understands that the time's coming where he's going to fade into the background and Jesus is going to take center stage. And when we say that these men follow Jesus, we mean it literally, right? Jesus is walking, and they actually begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, what are you seeking? What do you want? Why are you following me? Uh, he knew why they were following him, but he wanted them to articulate that we want to follow you. We want to be your disciples. They then ask where he's, going to, where he's staying, signaling that they intend to remain with him. It's the 10th hour, it's about 4 p.m., two hours before sunset, and so they spend the remainder of the day with Jesus. Now, that seems very abrupt, doesn't it? Behold the Lamb of God, okay, we're following. So the question is, what did the disciples actually know about Jesus? What did they already understand about him that would lead them to make such an abrupt decision to follow him? I mean, did, did they only know about Jesus from John's testimony? Or did they in some way have knowledge of who Jesus was from some other source uh, which had prepared them uh, to follow him? Well, the answer is in verse 40. In verse 41, one of the two who heard John speak, so this is uh, John the Baptist's disciples, uh, was Andrew. And what does Andrew do before he follows Jesus? He goes and he runs and grabs his brother, Peter, at this point named Simon, and says to Simon, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. The Messiah is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that simply means anointed one anointed one, when the Lord would set apart a man consecrated for service, whether a priest or a king, he would have that man anointed with oil. Literally means smeared upon, the pouring or smearing of oil on the head. The term used here by Andrew and Peter had obviously taken on some greater significance, however. Andrew to Peter says, we have found the anointed one. We have found the Messiah, the Christ. There are other anointed ones. I mean, every priest could be considered an anointed one. Uh, even the prophets, at a couple points, are called anointed ones. And kings were anointed ones, those set apart by God and ordained or appointed or anointed for a specific uh, office of service. But Andrew's saying something different here. He's saying, we have found the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, as if this is one for whom they were waiting. The Jews had come to expect a singular figure who would possess an anointing beyond any who had come before or who would come after. Now, we're Christians this morning. Uh, We have far more revelation than what Peter and Andrew do. We understand that the concept of Messiah or the anointed one involves not only the idea of kingship, but also the idea of a prophet and priest. And so we know that Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. Peter and Andrew at this point don't really know that. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on what they understood when they declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they understood the anointed one, the Messiah, primarily as the promised anointed king. That's who they were waiting for. They were waiting for a descendant of David who would hold a supreme office, which would have global implications. 
And so this morning, we want to drill down into this and understand just what those early disciples understood when they, testifying to the identity of Jesus, declared him to be the Messiah. Before you think that doesn't really have any implications or applications for us, let me remind you of John's purpose statement in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says that he's written what he's written in his gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so it's important for us this morning to understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, because it's by faith in his name that we can have eternal life. And so let's begin this morning by looking to the Old Testament to see just how the disciples' conception of the Messiah, the Anointed One, was formed. The hopeful anticipation of a figure who would arrive on the scene to set right the wrongs of the world and vanquish the enemies of mankind goes as far back as Genesis. And you say, oh no, he's starting in Genesis. Uh, Yeah, and we are going to end in Revelation. So... uh, This promise of one who would come on the scene and right the wrongs of the world and vanquish all the enemies of mankind goes as far back as Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin. It's there that we're given a promise that one day someone, an offspring of woman, the seed of woman, would appear on the scene and deal a death blow to the seed of Satan. That promise goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. There's one who would come and righteousness then would overcome evil and new creation would overcome corruption. Uh, That promise is given in Genesis. This promised seed would somehow reverse the curse of sin and death that Adam and Eve foisted upon creation. Every subsequent generation after Adam hoped that maybe their generation would be the generation where this promised seed would come on the scene and bring about deliverance for mankind. And over time, that lineage was narrowed so that we understand that after Cain killed Abel, that this promised one is going to come through Seth. And then when God judged the world through a flood, we understood that this promised one would come through Noah. And then among all the people of the earth, God chose Abraham. So we understand that this promised one would come through Abraham. And then we understood he would come through Isaac, uh, not Ishmael. And then Jacob, not through Esau. And then Jacob becomes the progenitor of a nation named Israel. Israel would produce the promised deliverer, the promised seed, the one who would crush the head of Satan. So we understand that this promised one would be a Jew. Then we see an interesting development in the expectation of the promised one. When Jacob's descendants, now the nation of Israel, were wandering through the wilderness, remember the account of a man named Balaam and Balak. Balaam was a pagan prophet, but he was consulted uh, by Balak to curse Israel. And Balaam there standing, looking upon the encampment of Israel, being prompted by Balak to curse, uh, cannot pronounce a curse upon Israel. Instead, God causes him to pronounce blessing. And this is what Balaam, that pagan prophet, says in uh, Numbers 24, verse 15. It says, he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Listen what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. 
Notice the language there, the idea of a star and a scepter. That speaks of a king. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. And so Balaam being prompted to curse. And all he can do is pronounce blessing. And God, by his Holy Spirit, causes him uh, to give this amazing prophecy. The prophecy being that one day a king is going to arise out of Jacob. He will have the scepter. He's going to exercise dominion. He's going to destroy all of his enemies. But the reason I draw your attention to this passage in Numbers 24 is because we started in Genesis 3 and saw the promised seed, one who's going to come and actually defeat all the enemies of man, Satan, which includes sin and death. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And notice the language in Numbers 24 here, as this prophecy is given, it says that this one, this kingly figure who will hold the scepter, will crush the head of Moab. It's an obvious allusion to Genesis 3. This is the head crusher. This is the one who destroys the enemies of man. And here in Numbers 24, we then see a merging of the promise of the seed and the promise of a coming king. It's going to be one and the same person. So now all eyes are going to look upon uh, not just uh, children who are born or men who are born, hoping that the next one may be that promised seed, but now all eyes are going to be focused upon Israel's kings. Israel's kings. Balaam was saying far more than he knew. The Lord is revealing through him that the promised seed who would crush the head of Satan would not only be one from within Israel, but it would be the king of Israel. The hope of Israel for a deliverer would eventually take the form of a kingly figure, one who would vindicate the cause of the poor and vanquish their earthly enemies. And so we turn then to consider the kings of Israel, the kings of Israel. Israel, in its original design by God, was a theocracy in its purest form. They were to be the people of God, and he would be their God. They would be his people. Uh, that would be mediated through priests. That's Israel in its purest form. If they were to have a king, that king himself would have to be a subject to the king of kings. He would have to be an obedient servant of Yahweh who would mediate God's rule over the people and not his own rule. Further, if the people of Israel were to have an earthly king, they were not to place all their trust in that earthly king, but instead keep their trust in God alone. But both those requirements, a faithful king and a people who worship God and God alone, would serve as a continual challenge for Israel. So as the Lord anticipates that Israel's eventually going to appoint kings over themselves, uh, he gives guidelines in Deuteronomy 17. And this, again, is important for us to consider because we're trying to trace out the promise of uh, God's promised deliverer, and so we must look to the kings. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, God says through Moses to the nation of Israel, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it, that's the promised land, and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. And he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so there God sets forth the requirements for an ideal king if Israel is going to have an earthly king over them. He's got to be chosen of the Lord. He's got to be one of the Jews. He can't depend upon his military might. Instead, he must depend upon the Lord. He must not accumulate for himself wives. He must not accumulate for himself silver and gold. He must write for himself a copy of the law, and he must read it uh, his whole life. He must obey the Lord in all things. And he must be a servant king who does not set himself apart from or above his brothers. Well, Israel's first foray into kingship seems to have violated almost every one of those points. Israel's first king was a man named Saul. They demanded a king, and Samuel anointed a king over them, and this man's name was Saul. After warning Israel that their motivation for wanting a king was wrong, and after warning them of the type of king they would end up appointing, Samuel says to Israel in 1 Samuel 8, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Right there from the beginning, this is one whom they have chosen for themselves instead of a king whom the Lord has chosen for them. Then the response of the people in 1 Samuel 8, 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so Samuel warns them that as they choose a king, he's going to be oppressive. They're going to cry out for mercy. And they wanted a king to go fight their battles. We don't want to rely upon the Lord for victory. We want a king that we can put our hopes in. They wanted a king who could render judgment uh, before them. Just like the other nations. While God, God warned that the king himself was to be the obedient servant of Yahweh, and God's law was to be the ultimate judge, they wanted a king who could serve that purpose. Really what they're doing is they're replacing God with an earthly king. Suffice it to say, Israel's first king, Saul, was an unmitigated disaster. And it really serves as the negative example and really prepared the hearts of Israel to say, you know what, we want a just and righteous king. The Lord said to Saul through Samuel in 1 Samuel 13, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept, uh, kept what the Lord commanded you. And so now the time has come where God himself is going to choose a king, not a choice of the people. God himself is going to choose a king. He's going to place him on the throne, and this king then is going to be an example, really an exemplar uh, for future kings. Enter who? King David. King David. And so you remember the story. The Lord instructed Samuel to invite a man named Jesse and bring all your sons. And uh, Samuel understood that one from among Jesse's sons is going to be the future anointed king. 
And he kind of parades them in front of Samuel. And Samuel, of course, just like we would do, says, okay, that big, strong, tall, strapping, good-looking young man must be the Lord's anointed. And God says to him, don't look on the outside. Don't, don't look on the inside. I judge by the heart. And he goes through all the sons, and God says to Samuel at each point, no, it's not that one. He's not the anointed one. Nope, he's not the anointed one. No, he's not the anointed one. So that Samuel's left without any other options, and he's got to ask Jesse, do you have any other sons? Yeah, David. David was out tending sheep because he was a young shepherd. Jesse goes and sends for David. David comes in, and then in 1 Samuel 16, 12, it says, Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David was the Lord's chosen. Not the people's chosen, the Lord's chosen. And what does Samuel do? He anoints him. He places oil on his head, anoints him with a horn of oil, uh, preparing him for the office that he will hold. And David would be the exemplary Israelite king. David, who trusted God in the face of insurmountable odds, in the face of Goliath, will continue the pattern of trusting God throughout his reign. David, who is offended when the Philistines defamed the name of God, will continue honoring God throughout his reign. David, who refused to kill Saul while he was being hunted by him, but instead trusted God to vindicate him, continued trusting God in his sovereignty throughout his reign. David, whose heart struck him with conviction when he tore the piece off of Saul's robe there in the cave, would continue to be sensitive to his own sin as king. When David established Jerusalem as the capital and brought the Ark of the Covenant there into the city, what was he signaling? This Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the throne of God, means that God himself is the ultimate king who's on the throne uh, here in the holy city. So we're told of David in 2 Samuel 8.15, he having begun as a shepherd, I'm sorry, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's what characterized David's kingship. And so he began as a shepherd, caring for the flock, and then he became the shepherd king, anointed by the Lord, mediating God's kingdom for the benefit of God's people, to the honor of God, the ultimate king. And so further, David was also not only a shepherd king, but he is also a mighty military commander, so that the Bible says that David became greater and greater, for the Lord of the God of hosts was with him, and that the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So, David is the exemplary Jewish king. His rule really became the zenith of all Jewish history. And all other kings would be compared to David. In fact, God would ensure that David in his reign would remain the standard of kings by making a covenant with David. We read this covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 8. 2 Samuel 7, 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David... This is the Lord speaking to the prophet Nathan. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's a reference to Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he, commands, uh, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And so here, this is God's promise to David, saying that your son's going to sit on the throne. He's the one that's going to build a temple for me, and I'm going to treat him like a son. So when he dis- disobeys me, uh, I'm not going to cast him off forever. I'm going to discipline him like a faithful father disciplines a son. But then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Can we take a breath now? What's happening here? We've come to, I said, the zenith of Israelites kings, King David, the exemplar. He is to be the example and the one to whom all future kings are compared. And this here is a hope that's given, it's a lasting hope that's going to carry forward into the New Testament times. Why? Because God makes a promise to David as he makes covenant with him that his house and his kingdom shall be made sure forever. That his throne will be established forever. And this is why many, many, many generations later when we come to Peter and Andrew, they can say we are anticipating a kingly figure in the line of David. This is why during Jesus' earthly ministry, over and over and over again, he's called the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Why? Because the expectation is that David's throne is going to continue uh, into eternity. And so even when Israel finds itself at the lows of captivity and exile and a restoration that really isn't much of a restoration at all and a temple that's rebuilt that pales in in comparison to the former, even then they're holding out hope for a future king. All because God first has made covenant with David, promising that his kingdom would continue forever. And so God promises to David that one from his own lineage would reign forever. He promises that one would arise to whom the God would relate to as a father relates to a son. He promises that he will never remove his steadfast or covenant love from him. And then the Lord promises to David that his kingdom again is going to endure forever. But now we begin to run into a problem. We've said a lot of nice things about David. Although David's decades as king were a high point in Israel's history, and although he was the exemplary Israelite king, things don't remain that way. Soon even David succumbed to his own sinfulness. And soon David's own sinfulness sees the unraveling of his kingdom. David, for all of his honorable traits, was a sinner. Terrible sinner. Commits adultery with Bathsheba. Oversees the murder of Bathsheba's husband. After hearing of Amnon's rape of Tamar, the Bible simply says that David was very angry. But he did nothing about it. David's household falls apart. His own son leads a revolt. When David, after being exiled from his own kingdom, returns to the throne, there he sins by taking a census, an act on par with the pride of the pagan kings. The remainder of David's tenure as king, his own sin and the sin of his children disrupt the peace that initially marked his monarchy. 
Following David, Solomon rises, and God is faithful to Solomon for the sake of his Davidic covenant. But there, Solomon builds the temple. Yeah, but he does accumulate for himself silver and gold, and he does accumulate for himself wives, and he becomes an idol worshiper, and the kingdom is divided. After Solomon, the kingdom would be divided, and a series of kings would ascend to the thrones in the divided kingdom of the north and south. In the northern kingdom, nine dynasties would cycle through, and not one of them would be honoring to God. In the southern kingdom, things are a little bit better there in Judah. God, in his faithfulness to David, uh, does allow uh, some faithful kings to arise, like Hezekiah and Josiah. But even the southern kingdom of Judah ends up drawn away into captivity. So the northern king and those ten lost tribes in Assyrian captivity, and the southern kingdom then captive in Babylon. So much for the Israelite monarchy. So following David, the history of Israel was a history of one corrupt, idolatrous, immoral king after another, and people who largely followed suit. Well, King David in the glory days of the kingdom became a distant memory, but also provided the foundation for a future hope. The prophets, and we could even say the psalmists, began to write, you understand that the prophets speaking prior to exile and during exile and after exile, and the Psalms actually being compiled post-exile, all provide a future hope, a hope looking towards a future king, a hope looking forward to a future king who would not only meet the standard of David, but surpass David. The hope of Israel was rooted in the covenant which the Lord had made with David looking forward to a throne that would be established forever. Psalm 2 looks forward to an anointed king called God's son, who might rule over all the nations and bring blessing to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 72 anticipates a king who would judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice, one who would defend the cause of the poor and crush the oppressor, one who fears the Lord, one under whose rule righteousness and peace would abound. Psalm 72 looks forward to a kingdom which extends from sea to sea. A king who simultaneously demands that all kings bow the knee before him while showing compassion to the weak and vindicating the oppressed. Then we come to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, whole, uh, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. A king, a future king, a coming king who will exercise a world dominion. And so think about a Jew reading these psalms. Think about a Jew reading these psalms from the the psalms being compiled after the exile. 
Think about that Jew after exile. The monarchy is long gone. They've experienced captivity. There's no Davidic king on the throne. And you're reading Psalm 2. You're reading Psalm 72. You're reading Psalm 110 that just speak of a glorious enthronement of a Davidic king. And now all of this now really has a, uh, a future taste to it, doesn't it? It's all now looking forward. And, and that Jew reading this is saying, if only... If only we could have that. If only we could recapture uh, such a kingship. If only we could recapture such a monarchy with such a king who would rule in righteousness. And they had right to place such hope in, uh, in a future king because they had the Davidic covenant. This hope for a future Davidic king is re- reflected in the book of Isaiah. Written at a time when injustice is rampant and kingship is in shambles and captivity is around the corner, Isaiah and Isaiah 9, verse 6, says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And again, put it in context. Babylonian captivity is around the corner. They're going to be under the oppressive regime of a pagan king. And yet they have this hope. The day is going to come when one is going to ascend to the throne of David. He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. There's going to be no end to his government. And it's going to be established in justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is kind of lost on us. Our government's corrupt, sure. But compared to other nations the world over? There's others in other areas of the globe, I think, that would resonate or would have this passage resonate with them. Oh, the hope for a leader who would be righteous. The hope for a leader who would ascend a throne and we can be assured that everything he does will be just. And then to have the assurance that such a leader could ascend to a throne and that throne never to be taken away. An eternal kingdom. What a hope. Isaiah again taps into this Davidic covenant promise in Isaiah 11. In verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being the father of David. From the stump of Jesse. Why? Well, because the tree's been cut down and all that's left is a stump because of the Davidic monarchies have gone away. And so all that's there is a stump. It looks like death. But suddenly a shoot is going to be, uh, begin to grow from that stump. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, for the peoples of whom shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's a coming day. There's a day coming of a coming king, a Davidic king. He'll be spirit-filled. He will fear the Lord. He will judge justly. He will deal with the poor and meek in equity. He will judge the wicked. He will be clothed in righteousness and faithfulness. His kingdom will bring peace, not just to the nations, but it's going to bring a peace over all of creation. When he rules, all of the world will find rest. Isaiah 16.5, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The prophet Jeremiah picks up on the same promises, but in Jeremiah, and as we're going to see in a moment, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Ezekiel bring something else into this promise of a future Davidic king, and it's really hearkening back to David's character as a shepherd. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both lament and decry and condemn the state of uh, Israel in their day because the leadership was so corrupt that they were like shepherds who were meant to care for a flock, but instead who were victimizing the sheep. And so in Jeremiah 23, it says, Woe to the shepherds, those are the leaders of Israel, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I, where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Long after David is dead, Long after David is dead and buried and Israel is burned through a host of unfaithful kings and are on the verge of captivity, the Lord promises. The Lord promises, I should say the Lord reminds them of his promise to David. Gives them hope of a future king who will meet and surpass the Davidic ideal. A shepherd king. A shepherd king who's going to rule in righteousness. Justice, righteousness in the land. And he will bring salvation to Judah and Israel. Ezekiel 34, verse 22. Is this stretching you this morning here? What are we doing? The survey of the Old Testament, one passage after the other. I hope you're following. Ezekiel 34. The Lord says, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. 
And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the Lord God. What a promise. The Lord promises a tender shepherd. And he calls that tender shepherd what? My servant David. My servant David. One who's going to come from the seed of David, who's going to ascend to the Davidic throne, and he's going to be a shepherd king. This king, again, would not be chosen by the people, but he's chosen by the Lord. He would anoint him. He would place him on the throne in his timing. His coming would bring relief and rest to the poor and needy and oppressed. His coming, his ascent to the throne would bring judgment to the wicked, vindication to the hurting. His kingdom would mark a salvation for all people. He would reign as a powerful king while possessing the compassionate heart of a shepherd. This righteous anointed one, unlike his ancestor David, will not see his kingdom unraveled due to sin, but will reign in righteousness forever. Back to Andrew and Peter. It's the hope of this coming anointed king. It's the hope of this coming anointed king that's developed and passed through the generations leading up to those faithful Jews who would become Jesus' disciples. When they say, we have found the Messiah, when they say, we have found the anointed one, when they say that he is the Christ, this is whom they believe they have found. And truly, this is the one they have found. When the angel declared to Mary in Luke 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign forever, out of the, out of the, he will reign forever over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This Jesus is the final fulfillment of the Davidic covenants. This Jesus is the one who will ascend to the throne that will last forever. You can imagine the exhilaration of Andrew and Peter and John the Baptist's other disciples. When they received news from John the Baptist that the long-promised anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David, had arrived. You can understand then that when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, and Andrew and Peter understand that what he's doing is he's pointing to the Messiah, the one who fulfills all of those Old Testament promises. You can understand why so quickly they say, we're coming with you. They daily experience life under the oppressive Romans. They witnessed the mistreatment of the poor and needy. They saw the suffering of the sick and disabled. They were affected by the rampant sinfulness all around them, just like we are in our day to differing degrees. They longed for justice. They longed for righteousness and equity. They longed for one who would judge justly. They longed for one who would plead for the weak. They long held out hope that they, as individuals and as a nation, would experience vindication and see their fortunes reversed. In other words, they had the same attitude that many of us have every election cycle. 
This Jesus is the anointed one, the promised righteous king, who will soon ascend to his throne and set everything right. And again, the disciples are right. They did find the son of David. Jesus was and is indeed the promised Davidic king who would rule in righteousness. And so at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends. And what is that? The Lord anointed him. He anointed him as the promised Davidic king. His obedience was unfailing, even in the face of temptation. His miracles were miracles of mercy shown upon the suffering. His words were words of wisdom, which gave life to its hearers. He associated with the lowly, rejected and downtrodden, though he was superior to them all. His care for the masses was a shepherd-like care as he's moved with compassion in response to their physical and spiritual needs. His trust in God was unfaltering, leading him to trust him all the way to the cross and to self-sacrifice. In all points, Jesus was the perfect anointed one. He was the perfect king. Unlike his father David, however, whose kingdom unraveled due to the power of sin, Jesus, the better Davidic king, overcame the power of sin and established his kingdom forever. However, as we reach the end here, Jesus would establish his throne in a way that his disciples didn't expect. They did not understand from the Old Testament scriptures and certainly didn't understand when they excitedly began to follow Jesus that Jesus would establish his throne and his dominion through his own death. As the perfect king, Jesus laid down his life for his people. Why? Because the description of the kingdom that we read in the Old Testament this Davidic kingdom where this, this perfect king is going to rule and reign over a kingdom that's characterized by justice and righteousness forever, the peace that then permeates the entire creation, cannot be had only by a perfect king. It cannot come about unless you also have subjects of the king who also are righteous. And so Jesus Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, gives himself on the cross and he dies. Why? So that he could make a people fit for the kingdom. So he could make a people fit for the kingdom. He died and was buried. He bore the wrath of God. He was buried. He rose three days later. He then became enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And he does now rule and reign, yes, over his kingdom, a kingdom which has taken a spiritual form now, but will be consummated in the end and for all of eternity. The angel says in Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So unlike Andrew and Peter and the other disciples in John 1, we have the big picture, don't we? We know that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but we also know that he did not come the first time to establish his earthly physical kingdom, but instead came to die. Why? Because he's not only the promised Davidic king, but he's also the promised offspring of the woman. He came not merely to vanquish earthly enemies, but he came to crush the head of the serpent, Satan. He came not just to overturn human corruption, but to eradicate the sin curse, which is the source of all corruption. He came not just to improve the quality of earthly lives, but to bring us spiritual life. He came not just to create a righteous kingdom for his people, but to first create a righteous people for his kingdom. This he could only accomplish by bearing our sin and suffering in our place and rising again in victory. So unlike Peter and Andrew and the other disciples, we have the fuller revelation. But like Peter and Andrew, 
and the other disciples, we do remain in a posture of hope, don't we? We also now are waiting for Jesus to come. We are waiting for Jesus to come the second time, having made a people righteous through his sacrificial death, making us fit for the new creation in the kingdom that will come. We look forward to the day when he will come and consummate that kingdom when he will actually ascend to his throne and that eternal kingdom then is consummated and uh, spreads out over all of creation into eternity. We have been made citizens of the kingdom before the kingdom has fully arrived. And to be sure, Jesus rules and reigns right now. He is Lord of all things to the church. But the day remains when Jesus, the anointed king, will return in power and glory and establish his glorious throne from which he will rule in righteousness for eternity. And so this is what it means when we say that Jesus is the anointed. This is what it means when Peter and Andrew say that Jesus is the Christ. This is what it means uh, when Peter and Andrew say that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is king over all the earth. We thank you that he is the perfect fulfillment of all of your promises, all the covenants. But as we focused on this morning, that Davidic covenant, as we are faced with unrighteousness and injustice and sin, corruption all around us, as we long for righteous and just earthly rulers, we're reminded that there is hope, though that hope isn't to be found in man. We're confident that the day is coming when Jesus Christ will ascend to his consummated throne over an eternal earthly kingdom that stretches forth into eternity and that under his rule, justice and righteousness will prevail. All will be vindicated. He will take up the cause of the poor and needy and he will set all things aright. So, Lord, we thank you for that hope. We thank you also that Jesus has already come, that he has inaugurated that kingdom. And he's done so by providing a salvation so that he can make a people fit for that kingdom. So, Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for Christ's imputed righteousness. We thank you that you have made us new creations fit in looking forward to that ultimate new creation. Help us now to live as citizens of the kingdom. Help us to recognize that we are subjects of the king, but also that we're more than subjects. We are servants in his household. But even more than being servants in his household, we are actually members of his family. But even more than being members of his family, we have been united spiritually for all of eternity to him. Lord, we understand that you promised that we also will rule and reign with him. So I pray that you will help us to live as those who have such an identity. Help us to live in hope of the kingdom that's coming and help us to live out as ethic even now. And then, Lord, I just pray for any of this morning who are not yet Christians. I pray that they would see that Jesus is the king, that he has ascended to his throne. And I pray that you would impress upon their hearts the need for salvation in his name so that they too Uh, could be on the right side of his kingship, and uh, that they too could be made a new creation fit uh, for that eternal kingdom to come. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the anointed one. We thank you for your mercy.
towards us that you've shown us through him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.